So our children headed to Children's Church in both services. Now's the time for you to go. The rest of you are stuck with me. So take your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians and we'll be in chapter three. I wanted to take just a a brief moment of personal privilege if I could. Today is a special day for my family because it was 10 years ago today that we met young Ray for the very first time. And today we call her Ray Deer and she is a part of our family. And so we look back on that as one of the highlights uh, of our lives and of our family. And we have some special friends here today to help us celebrate this. When we went to China uh, for this adoption, uh, there were four families that went. None of us knew each other, uh, but we met there in China, spent a few days together, and then we scattered out across the country. And this is the 10th anniversary for all of us uh, for the days that we met our adopted son or daughter. And a couple of those families are with us today, and I'm thankful that you've joined us. So Butch and Angela Wilson uh, from Houston, thanks for coming, and their precious daughter, Mia. And then also Christy, and her husband couldn't be with her, Danny, today, of Rich, uh, Richardson of Kansas City, and uh, their wonderful daughter, Alex. And then, of course, my daughter, Ray, and my wife, Donna, And uh, what a highlight that was 10 years ago. And it's a reminder. Amen. It's a reminder of just how good the Lord is. And, you know, we we look back on that as one of the greatest sources of joy in our lives. Uh, But we also see it as a reminder that God has adopted us into his own family. And that's worth celebrating for sure. Well, I want to preach a Christmas message from an unlikely passage today. We're right in the middle of a long series studying the book of Ephesians, and I didn't want to deviate from that today. So in reading back through the book of Ephesians in preparation for this Sunday that we would be together, uh, the Lord, I believe, has directed me to just an incredible passage that, while it may seem unlikely as a Christmas passage, will help us to remember the wonder of Christ and the wonder of Jesus, uh, of Christmas. Now, this will be a little bit different kind of message. Uh, Instead of giving you a bunch of points like we would ordinarily do on a Sunday morning, I just want to walk through about a half dozen verses of Scripture, and then I'll probably give you some points at the end just because I know how much some of you like to write in the answers. So we'll do that as we close, but I just want us to walk through some verses. We're going to put them up on the screen, and so if you're watching from our summit service this morning, it'll look very different to you, Uh, but you'll get to see these verses, and we want to look very closely at them. That's why we'll pop them up on the screen like this so you can see all that we're trying to learn. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 3, and you see on the screens, beginning in verse 16, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now in this uh, 
brief passage, just about one and a half verses, there are four distinct parts that if we're going to do a, a deep dive into this passage, we need to understand what they are. The first part, and I'll go through these quickly, it begins by saying, I pray that he may grant you. So this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul is praying for the people in Ephesus. We've already seen in our study of this book two or three other prayers that Paul has prayed. And so here he is praying again. The next part, according to the riches of his glory. That is a beautiful phrase. We'll come back to it in a minute. That tells us how God did what God did. And then the next part, the primary part of this passage, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts. There we'll focus some time. And then it ends with the phrase, through faith, that's our part of the equation. But I want to go back to this center part. Because I want you to see that we can take this center part, and if we just isolate it from the rest of the verse, we can see that it really has two parts. There are two statements here that are parallel. And because they're parallel, one defines the other and vice versa. So let's look at these two parts. It begins by saying, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. Now that's one of those phrases in the Bible that honestly... Uh, doesn't mean a lot to us because it's, it's difficult to understand what the apostle is communicating. But when we see the parallel passage, the parallel phrase, then it helps us to have clarity. So you see that next part simply says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, if we focus on those two, we see how one helps us understand the other. What does it mean to be well, let's start with through his spirit. What does it mean that Christ would dwell and through his spirit? He tells us here that the way that Christ dwells in our hearts, we'll see what that means in a moment, but the way that Christ dwells in our heart is through the spirit. The spirit of God comes and resides in our hearts and that's the way that Christ dwells. So one verse, one part, one phrase helps us understand the other. But then if we look at the, at the other part of these two, we see that to be strengthened with power in your inner being means what? Well, it means, and we see it in this other part, that Christ might dwell, dwell. What does it mean when we say, I have invited Jesus into my heart? What does it mean when we say that Jesus lives in me? It means that the Holy Spirit is in us and he is strengthening us with power in our inner being. He is protecting us. He is encouraging us. He is giving us spiritual wisdom and strength to avoid sin. That's what it means for him to dwell in our hearts. Now, I want to put it all back together. And so you see this whole passage that we read a moment ago. Now, let's look at the first part of it. According to the riches of his glory. Now, what does that mean? Well, it describes how the, the, the Holy Spirit of God dwells with our heart through Christ he tells us that he does this through the riches of his glory. Now, glory here is referring to the grace and the mercy of God. God does this. God saves us. God abides in us through the riches of his grace and his mercy. Now, what does it mean to be rich? 
To be rich means that you have more than you need, right? If you have more money than you need, then you are rich in money. If you have more love than you need, then you are rich in love. Well, here he tells us that God's grace and mercy, that God has blessed us according to the riches of his grace and mercy. God's grace and mercy, how much is there? There is more than we need. If you want to know how much mercy God has, how much grace he has for sinners, he has more than we need. And that's good news. Now, we go all the way to the bottom part through faith. Because God does this by his grace and mercy, the riches of his grace and mercy. But what's our part? Well, our part is faith. Faith is both the gift that God gives to us and it is the trigger that we pull in order for us to become children of God. And so for Christ to dwell in us through his spirit, according to the riches of his grace and mercy, we have faith. Now, if we look at the next part of this, I want you to see, um, well, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go back to that part, and I, I want you to see that, that oftentimes theologians will call this dwelling in Christ. They will call this, call this the Christmas of the soul. And so I told you it was a Christmas message, and I'm stretching a little bit, but I want you to see Christmas here, and then we're going to see Christmas a little further down. But people have called this God dwelling through Christ in his spirit in our hearts, the Christmas of the soul. Now, let me show you two or three ways, and this isn't in your outline, but let me show you two or three ways this Christmas of the soul is similar to the incarnation that we celebrate this time each year. The first way it is similar is because it is a divine intervention. Uh, so when Christ was incarnated when he came as flesh, born in Bethlehem, that was God in the flesh, God intervening in the history of man, sending Jesus in order to save the world. It was 100% the work of God to save the world. Well, what does it mean when Christ comes into us through his spirit? Well, it is the same divine intervention. It is the work of God, 100%, the work of God as God comes into our life through Christ, through the spirit, in order to intervene and to save us from our sins. So in this sense, it's, it's like the incarnation in that it is a divine intervention, God coming to us. But it's also a divine eminence. We learned on, or were reminded, back on December 5th when we had our Christmas program, I talked about the fact that Christmas tells us that God has come down the mountain. And some of you are here that day, and so you're familiar with what we talked about. The incarnation, Christmas, tells us that God has come near to us. He has come down the mountain. He has been born flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. But here we see Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in our hearts See, Christmas, whether it is the, the Christmas of the soul or it is the incarnation, it's about God being near us. And then the third way I could think of that it's similar to the incarnation is uh, it creates an epoch. And maybe that's not the best phrase, but when I think back through history, 
we know that all of human history is divided B.C. A.D., right? Before Christ and Ani Domini, which, which means the year of the Lord, but it, it refers to after the birth of Christ. And so if you're going to date something in history, you date it B.C. or you date it A.D., and that has become sort of the dividing point of all of human history. It was the venerable Bede in the 8th century that recognized this change, this momentous change in the history of the world. And he gave us this dating system. Christ coming into the world has divided history. Well, listen, Christ coming into us, Ephesians 3.17, to dwell in our hearts, it divides our history, doesn't it? For Noel, there is a B.C. Noel, and there is an A.D. Noel, and they're not the same people. The B.C. Noel had a different hope, reflected in a very different lifestyle, because he had a very different spiritual father. John 8, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. But then there's the A.D. Noel, again, different hope, reflected in a different lifestyle, because of a different spiritual father, Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. I have a different father. There's the B.C. Noel and the A.D. Noel, which begs the question, where are you in that? Is there, is there a B.C. and an A.D.? Are you on the A.D. side? See, Christmas, the incarnation, divided history. But when Christ came to dwell in my heart, it divided my history. And if he has come into your life, it divides your history. Well, then that takes us to the next two verses. Um, verse 17, you see on the screen, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I want to focus on the middle part of this because just like we saw in the previous two verses, there's, there's two parts to this and one part explains the other. So the first part, you see it here, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, height, and depth of God's love. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at the next little phrase. It says, to know Christ's love which surpasses knowledge. So if you put these together, if you see one as describing the other and vice versa, then you learn some things. Paul desires, he is praying that believers might know and understand the love of God. That is the most important thing in this world, that we would know and that we would understand the love of God. But here's what's interesting here. He says, and you see it in the second part here, that we are to know something that surpasses knowledge. He says it's impossible to know, but still that should be our pursuit. That is the goal of life, to know something that is so wonderful, that is so beyond our imagination, it's impossible for us to know, but we certainly can grow in love. Now, what does he mean when he talks about the height and the depth and the, and the breadth of God's love? I think he's reminding us that you just can't even measure God's love. 
We, we can't even imagine how high and how deep and how wide is the love of God. We can't measure it, which means we can't find the limit. We can't find the edge. You can't show me some place or some action or some decision that would put you absolutely beyond the love of God because you can't find the edge. His, his love has no limit, the height and the depth and the width of God's love. So then that takes us back to the full passage. We put all of that together and we've seen here now the love of God. But what does he say will happen if we know more, which is what he's prayed for, if we would know more of the love of God? Well, he tells us right at the end here that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. If we will seek, if we will pursue the love of God, if we will know better the love of God, we will be filled with the fullness of God. What does that mean? Well, in John 14, 23, it, it says that he will make his home in us in a fuller and a fuller way. More and more, God is with us. And the passion of God is with us. And the heart of God and the character of God is with us. In Ephesians 4.13, it says that we will be more and more like the character of Christ. The peace of Christ, the joy of Christ will be fuller and fuller in us when we know God's love. Now, with that being said, let's look at these last two verses. And here's where I want us to get to a Christmas focus and so verses 20 and 21, and, and, and I'll just direct you to your Bible here. He says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Now, this is one of those favorite verses for a lot of people. And this is an incredible passage now, I'm going to burst your bubble a little bit on what it means, but I think once that's done, you will have an even greater appreciation for the truth of this verse. So let's, let's look at it. it. It begins by saying that he is able, that God is able to do something. We'll see what he's able to do in a moment. But it's interesting, this word able is the word in the original that we get our word dynamo which is a generator, makes direct current electricity. And it's the word we get our word dynamite, the explosive nitroglycerin, I believe, invented by Alfred Nobel. Those two words, those two things come from this Greek word. It, it is a word that refers to power. God is powerful. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing. He is able. Well, able to do what? He says here he is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. What could that possibly mean? Well, it would have to be something that is so extraordinary that we wouldn't even feel that we could ask. I mean, think that's what he says, that he is able to do beyond what we could ask. Whatever this is, it's something so incredible that we wouldn't even feel right asking God for this. And he says it is beyond what we could think. Or your Bible may say, imagine. Whatever this is, it is something that you could not, that I could not even imagine that God would do. So what is he talking about? Well, I don't think he's talking about riches or health 
or happiness because I can imagine all of those things. And I have asked God for all of those things at times, right? If that's all your God is able to do, make you rich or healthy or happy, then you have a pretty small God. If that's if that's the framework you have of God, then, then you don't really understand your problem. You don't understand the depth of your sin and the separation you have from a holy God and your God is really small. I want you to have a great appreciation of what this means, of just what God has promised us when it says he is able to do even more than we could ask or imagine. And so I wanna tell you a story and I, I don't think I've ever done this before. Uh, but I'm going to read a little bit. It's a longer story, uh, three or four minutes maybe. But I want to tell you a story, a parable, uh, that uh, perhaps will help us to understand. And I, I, I saw this, I saw pieces of this, and if, have put together the details. It happened in 851 A.D. This was the same year that the, that the Vikings uh, sailed up the Thames River, really sailed, sailed west on the Thames River, and they sacked London and and Canterbury, uh, eventually defeated by the, by the Saxons. This is, uh, this is about 50 years after Christianity split between Rome and Constantinople, between the West and the East. It's still split along those lines. So 851 AD, it happened in the small city of Kimball at the headwaters of the Thames uh, there was a duke, the Duke of Kimball. His name is Guthrum, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And he lived just outside the more populated township of Kimball. He was famously wealthy, as the story goes. And though he was kind and generous with the people of Kimball, uh, they despised his wealth. And so in the fall of 851, the townspeople sought to terrorize the Duke and his family by sneaking onto the land and destroying acres of ornamental gardens. Uh, the act of aggression, though, barely seemed to phase the Duke. He did not retaliate and, in fact, acted as if nothing happened. So in the spring of 852, the townspeople all decided uh, together to escalate the attack and they destroyed the gardens They destroyed the castle and they killed everyone in the home The only two people to survive were the Duke and his oldest daughter Who had been away? When the escalated attack occurred the king uh, King Baldred of Kent uh, became aware and uh, As the story goes the king sent word to the townsfolk that he would be there in one week and he would execute the person responsible for the attack. And the people of the town were to be prepared to identify the leader. The townspeople didn't know what to do because really there was no leader. They had all decided to do this. They had all agreed to do it and they had done it together. And so they agonized over who they would offer up to the king. So finally, the king did arrive, King Baldred of Kent, to ride with his soldiers. There were about 400 people in the town, and, and the king lined them up outside, and he demanded that the responsible person step up, but nobody moved. Uh, the king said, someone must take responsibility or everyone will die. Still nobody moved, emotions were high, great suspense. And then, as fairy tales go, 
the duke and a companion were seen quickly coming down the road by horseback. And the duke said to the king, this is my daughter, and she has something to say. And the daughter spoke and said, I understand, king, that justice must be served, but I love these people despite what they have done, and I will die for what they have done to my family. And that is the reason that I've come today. Now, completely made up story. None of that's true. None of the cities, the people, the history. But I just sort of made it up. Because the story is the story of the gospel. The heavenly father is seen in the king and the duke. The king, as he demanded that, uh, that the sin be paid for, and the duke as the offended party who wanted to pay himself. Jesus, the son, is seen in the daughter who sacrificed her life. And we are seen in the 400 people who stand with mouths agape and who are heard saying, we never could have asked the duke's daughter for this. And we could never have imagined that she would. See, I think when the Bible says that God is able to do exceedingly above, beyond anything that we could ask or imagine, I think he's talking, at least in part, about the gospel. We sinned. We rebelled. We broke promises. We've been selfish. We owe a debt. We're hopeless because the only way both the debt and the holiness of God can be satisfied is if somebody would die for our sin. The problem is there is no one to die for our sin except for one. But that one is the one that has been aggrieved. The one is the son of the king who we have sinned against. But God loved us so much, he sent his son to be born in Bethlehem as flesh and to live, to die, to pay the penalty for our sins. And, and that's beyond anything we could have asked. It is beyond anything we could have imagined that the holy God who we have offended is the God who has sent his son, his innocent and pure son, to die for our sins. Jesus was born to die that's what Christmas is about. And that's above anything we could ever ask or anything that we could ever imagine. The best way we can celebrate Christmas is to seek to know the unknowable, the unbelievable love of God. The Bible says in verse 19 that we read, to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. To, to appreciate that which we could never have asked and never could have imagined that God would send his son Jesus and that he would be born to die. How do we celebrate Christmas this year? Let us stand amazed at the height and the depth and the, and the breadth of the love of God as seen in the story of Christmas. Now, I want to give you some blanks. Do we really understand 
Do we really comprehend the love of God? You see, I I know that some people are thinking, Pastor, I've heard this sermon a thousand times before, and I hope you do say that. It has been preached from this pulpit for years and years and years. I mean, not the same sermon, but the same gospel, and of course you've heard it before. But the question is not whether you've heard it before. The question is whether you've comprehended it. The question is whether or not you know this unknowable, amazing love of Christ. And I want to give you just three or four signs, biblical signs, that you may not yet comprehend the love of Christ. Number one, you do not comprehend the love of Christ if you are not amazed at the incarnation and the crucifixion. We've already established this is an amazing thing. It's amazing, number one, because it was unprompted and undeserved. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love to us that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It is amazing because it is unselfish, Philippians 2, 5, and 6. It is amazing because Christ was willing to suffer for us, Matthew 26, 39. It is amazing because of what it cost him, Matthew 27, 46. And it is amazing because of the incarnation. Luke 2, 12 says, this will be the sign You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. It is the amazing love of God who would do beyond what we would ask or imagine and send his son to be born to die for us. The second sign, I think that you do not comprehend the love of Christ, is that you continue to feel the weight of condemnation. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation for those that know Christ, for those who are in the family of God. The gospel means that if you are a child of God, God will not charge you with any sin that's been covered by the blood of Christ. And and every sin has been covered by the blood of Christ for those who are his children. Consequently, nothing you could do could make God love you less. Just as there is nothing you could do that would make God love you more. There is no condemnation because as a child of God, your sin has been completely forgiven. There's a third sign that you do not comprehend the love of Christ. You cannot forgive yourself. You know, as a pastor, this is just one of those questions that we get Often, how do I forgive myself? How do I forgive myself? And, and usually there are a couple of different reasons why people might say that they can't forgive themselves. And one of them fits right here. It comes often from a failure to really comprehend God's love. When God forgave your sin in Christ, he did not just transfer your sin from one account to another account that had a more favorable interest rate. Have you ever done this? Have you ever owed some money on a credit card and you couldn't pay it all off at the end of the month and so you transferred it from, I know none of you have done this, but you transferred it from one account to a different account. You know, you get those little offers in the mail because the different account, the different card had a more favorable terms, less interest or no interest for a few months or something. Well. Listen, I I don't know that that's ever a very wise financial move. Maybe, maybe not. But I'm telling you, that's not what God has done. And when I confess my sin, God did not just simply take that guilt, that 
that would lead to death and move it to another account so that I could pay it off in a different way. No, God forgave that debt. God did not just postpone it. God did not just put me on a payment plan. He forgave it instantly and completely. I am forgiven and there's no sin left on my accounts for me to feel that I can't forgive myself. Uh, there's a verse that doesn't get as much attention as it should. 1 Corinthians 1.23, listen to this. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. What does that mean, a stumbling block? It's the, it's the word in the original that we get our word scandal from. He says that, that the cross of Christ is a scandal. How could it be a scandal? Well, it's a scandal because it just almost seems like it's too much. Because the forgiveness is just too deep and it's too complete. It almost seems reckless of God. I mean, God, you're just going to forgive all of their sins when they put their trust in you. You're, you're not just going to do part of it or put them on a payment plan. I mean, you're just going to wipe all of the sins away. That doesn't even seem responsible. But that is the reckless love of God that the world calls a scandal. But the next verse says that those in Christ see it as the power and the wisdom of God. If you struggle to forgive yourself, you just need to remember how wonderful, how complete, and how reckless is God's forgiveness. And then the final sign that you may not fully comprehend the love of God at a, at a Christmas season like this is that you're frustrated that God has not done more for you. Sometimes people are frustrated that God has not restored their health or mended their relationships or blessed them with, with great wealth. But those kind of things miss the most wonderful truth of Christmas. Christ was not born to give you trinkets. Christ was born to make you new. Imagine if you were chained in a cold, dark, wet dungeon Chained to the wall, hopeless, no way out, waiting death. Occasionally receiving a stale, moldy piece of bread. Waiting simply to live out your days until finally in agony you would die alone. About once a month or so, some people would come by to encourage you. One, when he came by, would give you some gold. Give you some pieces of gold, shiny gold. Some would come by and give you an extra piece of moldy bread. Another would come by and just tell you a knock-knock joke. But one day, years into the Senate, still waiting your death, a man shows up with something different. This time he has the keys to the shackles and a decree of pardon. On that day, you're not disappointed that he has not brought you more pieces of gold or moldy bread because on that day he has brought you freedom and life. And that is what Christmas is all about. What the love of Christ is all about. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. We go through the motions of Christmas every year and it, we love to see our families, there's, there's joy, we give and receive gifts. We um, eat nice meals, sing some of our favorite songs.
I think the thing that's missing for most of us is we don't just stop and marvel at Christ. There is no better time to marvel at the love of Christ than at Christmas. That what God has done is not ordinary. It's not expected. It's not even reasonable. He has done above what we could ever ask or imagine. He, the offended one, has sent his son to be born, to die for us. That's the love of Christ. Father, this Christmas, help us to marvel at Christ. And Father, for those today, in this service where I speak, or our summit service across the campus, for those that are watching the streaming or the broadcast, if they don't know a personal B.C. and A.D., I pray you stir in their hearts and help them to respond in faith that while they celebrate the incarnation Christmas, they might also know the Christmas of the soul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together across both of our services and let's sing.